Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple. To make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people make friends, just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Beware of hating what you wish for. All my career, I've seen moments like these. Moments where everything that stirred fear on the way up stirs even more fear on the way down. And yet the latter fear ultimately proves to be wrong. Just look at what happened today, where we opened very weak for the Dow ultimately closed down just 129 points. SP advanced 0.16%. Most impressively, NASDAQ gained 1.75%, even though it was real ugly at the opening. Let me give you some specific examples of how wrong it is to fear the same thing that you were once hoping for. This is not a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose game. The most obvious is what's happening in the bond market. As interest rates soared, with the 10-year Treasury jumping all the way to 349 we worried that this would tamp down business investment and make stocks in general less attractive. Worst of all, we were told it meant the economy was heading to a recession, and that was bad. Now the 10-year has fallen to 2.8%. What do we hear? More fear. The same story. It means we're going to recession. Apparently, it's a nightmare that rates go up or down. That's nonsense. You can't have it both ways. You can't be scared of higher rates and lower rates. History says we should like lower interest rates. Stocks with good dividend yields get some lift because they become more attractive in comparison. Businesses will find it cheaper to borrow. Credit's easier. And, of course, it's a sign that the Fed is winning its war against inflation after a couple of aggressive rate hikes. That's good news, not bad news. Don't be afraid to say that. Remember when we were worried about commodity inflation? Every commodity seemed to be soaring. Now they're collapsing. Just look at some of these stocks. Freeport, the giant copper miner, traded $51.99 in March. Now it's to $27. Alcoa, aluminum kingpin, plunged from $98 to $42. Tech Resources, really a proxy for mining, falling from $45.90 to $28. Less than a month. These are full-scale crashes, people. Lumber, nickel, corn, silver, all been crushed. Almost all commodities have reversed direction. Today, finally, they got to the oil companies. Today, oil broke down under $100 after being above 120 just a few weeks ago. There was a city guy just before us saying that a crash is uh, imminent right in our face. Now, I understand that President Biden's angry that the price at the pump hasn't come down to, uh, but it's, it's only a matter of time. That said, we don't have enough competitive refining companies because politicians have relentlessly added laws that make them impossible to build. Nobody wants their fire in their backyard. Still, gasoline is ultimately going to come down. I bring this up, though, because we fretted over every dollar as oil climbed to 120. And yet now we're fretting over every dollar on the way down. 
Again, you cannot have it both ways. Cheaper gasoline is good for nearly everybody because it's a tax on the system. Of course, I don't think oil is going back to 60 or $70 a barrel. Uh, this stocks now reflect that. I'd be a buyer for this total collapse in value. As cryptocurrencies rose, we were told they were stores of value against inflation. But the relevance of the rally began to scare us, and we started to wonder whether the whole thing was one giant craze that had sucked in a huge amount of retail value. People began to rant about how overvalued anything crypto was, and then as stocks fell, these things fell much harder. They turned out to be uh, not to be storeholes of anything. The asset class has now lost two-thirds of its value. Again, if you dislike rampant speculation, then the collapse of crypto is good news. Maybe bringing money back to stocks. You can't mope about how these things were surging and be just as bummed now that they're falling through the floor. We need signs that this mania has run its course. That's exactly what they're giving us. Can't have it both ways. Most important, let's talk stocks. For the longest time, we had stocks romping and romping with new ones invited to the party regularly. Last year, we had literally hundreds of initial public offerings and SPACs that didn't deserve to be publicly traded, raising billions of our hard-earned dollars. Now, if you look at these stocks, you'll see many of them obliterated, causing the IPO door to slam shut and the back door of the SPAC shut even harder. The idea that we could have zero IPOs, though, is positive. Positive for existing stocks, because institutions don't have to sell their old stocks to take in new merchandise. As the IPO track went along last year, the most speculative garbage companies got through the shoot. Yet now people whine that the lack of deals is a bad sign. Give me a break. Plus, the supply of equities does drive up when companies buy back stock. It's positive, not negative. Finally, how are individual companies doing? All I can tell you is if that is that the price earnings multiples have been smashed, just smashed on the way down. And it's because of the Fed, not the companies themselves. There simply haven't been that many downside surprises. The strong dollar will hurt earnings as it translates into weaker results for companies that do lots of business overseas. But a strong dollar is inherently deflationary. A sure sign again that the Fed is winning. Everyone hates the Fed so much they refuse to ever think that J-Pal could be winning. I expect companies will report good, not great earnings. I expect their outlooks to be mixed to negative. But the question will then be, did the stock reflect that disappointment going in? Well, we had the poster child this week, Micron. Micron's a good chip maker with a lot of exposure to the personal computer and cell phone markets and a little less to the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and autos, which are still very strong. The future for PCs and phones is dim because in many cases, the consumers already bought their personal computer or handset. They over-earned during COVID. And that's why the stock sold at very low, five times earnings multiple right before it disappointed when it reported last week. Initially, after it reported, Micron stock dropped a couple of points. Not more, I think, because it had already fallen from 98 to 55. But it didn't drop nearly as much as you would have thought, given that disappointing outlook. Then we interviewed CEO Sanjay Marocha this morning on Squawk on the Street, and he pointed out some positives that really weren't emphasized at all in the conference call, including, most importantly, that he felt Micron will experience nowhere near the kind of decline in earnings that it's seen in previous downturns. They're going to cut CapEx. They recognize that they've shifted much more to, to uh, enterprise and less to consumer. Now, what, what happened? The stock rallied immediately. It rallied back to where it was before the negative guidance. And then the darn thing finishes the day up three bucks. That move, that move actually helped ignite a rally throughout the entire semi and technology group. One that might have some legs, if just the analysts let it happen by, by shutting up and not cutting price targets. On the one hand, we think stocks might be too expensive. But on the other hand, the ones that have already come down substantially can now bounce on bad news. 
That's what Micron showed you, a classic bad news bounce. There are so many stocks like Micron, stocks that are so low, they just might not go down when we hear negative forecasts. Again, you cannot have it both ways, people. You can't think stocks are both expensive and cheap. They're either one or the other, which is why I think Micron jump today is the real thing. It got cheap. So should we hate this market or learn to love it? Wrong question. Perhaps what we should we we should like the stocks that now sell at historically even even record-breaking low valuations and recognize that the declines have gotten too great versus the underlying fundamentals, like we just saw with Micron, given the fact that interest rates are coming down, not up. The bottom line, we could bounce around here doing nothing, digesting the declines, but we can't act like there have been no declines and stocks haven't gotten cheaper. In fact, with the collapse of the oils, there's no group left that hasn't been savaged. That may be enough to justify thinking more positively about this entire now-despised asset class, too. Funny thing about stocks, they do still get cheaper as they go lower, provided there's some quality to their business. Sal in New York. Sal. Hi, Jim. Hey, Sal. Hey, uh, I had a question about Roku. It's one of my favorite stocks. Been in it for several years now. Wrote it all the way up to 490, and now we're sitting under 100. Lost about 80% on it. What's your feelings about that short term and long term? I feel it's a great play in the space, and... Well, I think it can bounce because I think it can bounce because it's worth more than 12 billion. But I also think that you've got you're up against the Amazons of the world now. uh, And I think that Roku ultimately over earned during the time of covid. And so now it's going to have to pay the price. Let's go to Umesh in New Jersey. Umesh. Big booyah from East Brunswick, New Jersey, Jim. Now you're talking. What's up? What's up? Ford Motor Company. um, They're toying with my emotions. Sales, demand, earnings, innovations for their electronic vehicles are all looking picture perfect or almost picture perfect. Strength line has been deviating against the S&P. And as you know, there are recent reports that within the next, by 2030, we're going to have a huge shortage in public and private charging stations. How do you see Ford playing out? Okay, I think I Ford stock, you know, we sold a huge amount for our travel trust, and we are itching to buy it back. Why? Because we think, I'm in disbelief that it could yield 3.5%, that it's getting out of every single one of its cars or trucks that doesn't make any money, and it has a very good uh, very good e-business that's going to be even better when they start rolling out the, the uh, Lightning Ford 150. So I think at 10, 11, I think this stock feels like Micron did coming into today's session. Right now that oil's collapsed, there's no group left that hasn't been savaged. I like that. I think that could be enough to justify thinking more positively about stocks as a whole. Don't go nuts, but think about it. They've come down a lot. Well, Man Money tonight, the first half of the year is in the book, so when it comes to the Dow, which stocks prevailed and which ones would falter? Hey, how about a dogs of the Dow Act look? I think it could work. Then, I was planning on discussing the top five and bottom five of the SP 500, but most of the stocks were oils that were winners. So what I'll do is I'll take a closer look at the oil space now that it's got it's going into a bear market of incredible proportions. And then Nasdaq had a tough first half, so I'm dissecting the winners and losers to see what was surprising and what continued into the second half. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? 
Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The second half, hopefully not the same as the first half. And the latter part of the day sure was encouraging, as was the comeback from this morning's ugliness. Still, now that we've entered the latter half of the year, it's worth looking back to see where we came from. This is how we take the temperature of the market. Needless to say, it was very rough. The S&P 500 turned in its first, first half performance since 1970, down more than 20%. Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 15%. And, of course, the tech-heavy Nasdaq was ground zero, down nearly 30%. You don't need me to go through the whole litany explaining the decline, rampant inflation causing the Fed to slam the brakes on the economy, the war in Ukraine sending oil and food prices skyrocketing, and China's COVID lockdowns putting pressure on businesses messing up with supply chains. Like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, when it comes to the broader stock market, I still think the earnings estimates are too high, and the upcoming earnings season could be rough. Still, we have a new template just this morning. We could have more microns ahead, stocks that have gotten too cheap and can bounce on an even awful outlook provided that outlook is tempered somewhat by what can happen in the second half. I still think it's worth doing a deep dive into the broader uh, biggest winners and losers of the first half, get a better sense of what actually worked in a horrible environment, what totally crushed your portfolio, and what could spring back Lazarus-like and help your portfolio. Let's start with the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's the best performer because it's got the most exposure to profitable companies that make real things or provide real services and return stock, uh, dividends and uh, buybacks to you. Now, there are only 30 names in the Dow, and you don't get to join this index unless you've got a certain pedigree. These tend to be boring, mature companies that typically pay nice dividends, which is what protects you when the Fed is tightening. 
Sure enough, eight of the 30 stocks in the Dow actually gained ground in the first half of the year, which is pretty good comparatively, although 18 of them were down double digits. So what did we learn from the biggest winners and losers? For the first half, the top performer in the Dow was the only energy name in the index, Chevron, up 23%. Even as the stock peaked four weeks ago, it actually kind of entered into a bear market. It's now pulled back so hard, along with the price of crude, that I find it interesting again. Now, I'll have more on oil and gas later, but for now, you just need to know that it's time to get selective, circle the wagons around the highest quality names with the best dividends. We actually sold some Chevron for the charitable trust last week, higher, although we kept most of our position because I still like the company. That said, today's collapse in oil prices has me feeling a little bit worried for this one, although I like some of the smaller ones because they have bigger dividends. You'll hear about them later. Second best performer in the Dow, Merck, up 19%, purely defensive. This pharmaceutical giant is increasingly focused on best-in-class anti-cancer portfolio. But really, Merck's rally is all about a rotation into recession-proof drug companies with consistent earnings and juicy dividends. Even after this move, the stock sells for less than 13 times earnings with a 3% yield. That's exactly what you're supposed to own at this point in the business cycle, unless rates continue to go down, and then it will be discarded. Third is a curious one, Amgen, up 8%, one of the more mature biotechs out there focused on inflammation, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. This one's a little tricky, because while the next couple of years looks pretty good, Amgen is facing some big patent expirations from 2025 through 2030. Still, right now, investors care more about the intermediate future, and there's a lot Amgen can do to fill that patent void. Now, this is not my favorite, but I can see the appeal if you want something defensive. Fourth, we've got Travelers, the only insurance company in the Dow, also up 8%, very well-run company. The insurance stocks tend to perform well during a Fed-mandated slowdown because people don't stop paying the premiums just because the economy's doing worse. Plus, these guys sit on big piles of money, and when the Fed's tightening, it means they can earn a better risk-free return by putting that cash into short-term treasuries that have much higher yield than they did before. Now, unfortunately, Travelers got hit the last time it reported, even though I thought the results were okay. If you want to own a financial here, I think you might be better off from one of the beaten-down bank stocks or brokers. Fifth best performer, I think, can stay up here, Coca-Cola. It's up 6%. I recommended this one at the beginning of the year as a dividend aristocrat, and I've kept pounding the table all year. I think the future is bright for Coca-Cola because the one thing holding this company back was inflation, especially raw costs and freight costs. But those costs have now started to come down. Cans have come down. Plus, I like the Tobo Chico hard seltzer joint venture with Bolson Coors and their Jack and Coke deal with Brown Foreman. They're really much more open than the old Coca-Cola. That's James Quincy for you. All right, how about the five worst performers in the Dow? This is where the opportunities are, even though they are ugly. But maybe you will see, I could be like Bizarro Superman. Me like I'm ugly. The ugliest is Disney, down 39%. This is actually kind of incredible. It's hard for me to stomach because the stock trades like the, the Disney Plus streaming business is all that matters. We're in a bad moment for streaming, but Disney's got the parks, which are on fire. It's got the huge film franchise. It's got the TV business. I know the stock's been obliterated here, but I'm very optimistic about the future, which is why we own Disney for the Travel Trust and have made a very big commitment to it down here. Second, there's Nike, down nearly 39%, including one more leg lower last week in the wake of a poorly received earnings report that I didn't think was all that bad. Like I said, at the, to- at the time, a lot of this weakness comes down to the lockdowns in China. And now that the Chinese economy is reopening, I think it's safe to start building a position in Nike right here. Third worst is Salesforce.com, another name we know well, down 35%. Regular viewers know I believe this is a great company. I've liked it since it was at $8 many years ago when the show started. But for the last seven months, the market's been allergic to cloud-based software stocks. doesn't matter that Salesforce keeps putting up great numbers. This thing still feels like a prisoner of its cohort. Salesforce does a ton of business during its annual Dreamforce conference, though. And we haven't had one in two years thanks to COVID. Now, that changes in September. 
So you might want to buy some ahead of Dreamforce. I haven't said that in years, but it's going to work, I think. This stock is almost never this cheap. The fourth biggest loser, Home Depot, off a little less than 34%. What went wrong here? Home Depot's weakness really comes down to two things. Investors are worried about the housing market peaking. That's what happens when the Fed makes it more expensive to get a mortgage. And they also had a suboptimal start to gardening season. But that was all weather-related. Still, when Home Depot reported last May, their numbers were much better than expected. I think this is a great company with a compelling long-term story. Look, keep in mind you might get better prices going forward. I don't know if it can bottom ahead of when housing bottoms, but I can tell you that Home Depot stock down here is cheap, and I like it. Maybe down 10 from here is the ultimate time to buy. Finally, the fifth biggest loser in the Dow was Cisco Systems, off nearly 33%. This networking equipment and enterprise software play got annihilated in May after slashing its full-year forecast. But Cisco's main problem was that the lockdowns in China caused delays for certain key components. That's temporary, although probably not solved yet. Plus, when we spoke to CEO Chuck Robbins in San Francisco a few weeks ago, he sounded much more confident about China. Cisco is selling for less than 13 times earnings, 3.6% yield. Very tempting, which is why we're holding on to it for the trust. And I think it's a terrific play on China coming back online. As you can see, we like a lot of the stocks that are beaten down more than the stocks that are pumped up. The bottom line, I know this is a tough market, but I'm betting the second half turns out to be better than the first for the worst performers. Uh, and, you know, it's okay for the best performers. More on how there could be some real good buying opportunities in the second half coming right up. Ned Money's back here for the break. Coming up, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Kramer gets Dickensian with an oil and gas analysis. Next. What a dilemma. I wanted to go over the best and worst performers to S&P 500 for the first half, but the best were all oils, and the worst were mostly the same names you'll see in our NASDAQ roundup after the break. So rather than focusing on the S&P, let's just talk about oil directly, because it's really the crux of the market, especially on a day like today where the price of crude plunged more than 8%, which to me feels like a genuine opportunity. Now, I don't know if oil has truly peaked, even as it's down huge from its highs. But what I do know is that we've got a bifurcated market. There's the oil that goes to the West and the oil that goes to the East. The West is hostage to U.S. producers and OPEC. But the East is getting tons of cheap oil thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And no one saw that happening. There's such a massive difference in these two prices that oil here in the West started rolling over simply due to the arbitrage. Simply put, Russia's flooding the East with oil, and that's causing the world price to tumble. Basically, any East Asian country with a port, especially China or India, has now stopped taking Western oil and started buying it from the Russians on the cheap. It took a little bit for Russia to reorient sales, which explains the big spike earlier in the quarter. But at the end of the day, they need money. And the Chinese and Indian governments are more than willing to do business with them, even if it means financing the war against Ukraine. Sadly, that means our government sanctions on Russia did next to nothing. Now, the price of crude has basically gone back to where it was when we realized that Ukraine wasn't going to roll over, but not much more than that. However, like I said, I'm not confident that oil's had a long-term peak. Why? Because China's just beginning to reopen its economy, and as they emerge from lockdown, their demand for crude should soar. I think there'll be much more driving. At the same time, it's not clear to me how much longer President Biden can keep releasing a million barrels per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Remember, it's meant for strategy. In short, the demand from a reopened China in the United States will keep gasoline and therefore oil at elevated prices, but not necessarily that much higher than here, because the Fed's slamming the brakes on the economy along with its central bank compadres in the rest of the world, and that should reduce demand over time. 
always has, always will. So what do you do with the oil stocks? To me, it looks like they had a blow-off high not that long ago and have suddenly entered bear market territory. Still, I think you need oil exposure as a hedge, even more so than gold or cash or crypto. For the Chapel Trust, we've historically held cash as a way to hedge against the decline in the broader stock market. But after looking at the results in the first half, it's clear that oil was the one group that thrived in an otherwise hideous market. I look at it like this. If oil stalls or falls, the rest of our portfolio will do just fine, which is exactly what happened today. That's why for the investing club, we're maintaining a small cash position with more oil exposure. Twice the oil exposure you get if you bought an S&P 500 index fund. If oil soars, you'll make money, uh, even if the rest of your portfolio gets hurt. And of course, vice versa. Now, that's, that's, by the way, called diversification. Now, there could be a difference between the big winners and lesser winners in the group, and some of that depends on politics. For example, this earnings season, the part of the oil and gas sector that will have by far the best quarters will be the refiners. They haven't dropped price, despite the fact that the price of crude oil has come down substantially, and their margins were already high to begin with because of lack of refining capacity. This disparity, by the way, is at the heart of the Twitter spat between President Biden and Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos. There's no collusion among refiners. There's just a shortage of them. But the question is, will there be too much headline risk when they report? Let me put it this way. Given the current price at the pump, I can't imagine Biden letting Valero or Marathon Pete or Phillips 66 or Holly Frontier off the hook. Not if he wants to get reelected. Fairly or unfairly, as Bezos knows all too well, it's easy to paint what they're doing as profiteering. Wall Street loves profits. Uh, so as long as you don't mind the headline risk and can handle days like today, well, this is your big four. I have to tell you, I, I have trouble with them because I do think that the president is going to make trouble with them. Next, in the first half, we had some major comebacks among the larger oil producers, and that was led by Occidental. Now, I don't think that Oxy can repeat as the number one performer, because that would benefit from its recovery after its ridiculously expensive Anadarko acquisition, along with some relentless purchasing by Warren Buffett, including yesterday. I mean, we saw some more today. I mean, this guy's, he loves Oxy. Is he trying to buy Oxy? Of the majors, I still like Chevron because of its enormous buyback and its bountiful dividend. But the moment oil went down 15 bucks from its highs, we started seeing price target and estimate cuts. Like I mentioned earlier, we sold some Chevron for the Travel Trust last week, but not much because it's a good company, even as days like today make me wince. I can't really get behind the other majors uh, because of their lack of growth. Although, I have to tell you, after I watched David Favor's special, I found Exxon pretty intriguing. Now, you could say that's a reason to avoid Pioneer Natural Resources and Devon Energy, because they're restricting their own growth purposefully. But growth for growth's sake is over in the oil patch. Pioneer and Devon have insanely generous variable dividend policies. As long as crude stays above 80 bucks a barrel, their yields will be insanely high. I think they should soon be washed out. Not unlike Micron was, as I described at the top of the show. I like stocks with high yields now that the Treasury yields have plunged, and Pioneer is the highest yield in the S&P 500. Next up, when Freeport LNG, one of the big liquefied natural gas export players, lost a huge part of its operation to a fire, that put a lid on the natural gas cohort. The pure play Apache has fallen from 52 to 32. And Kotara, the one we own for the Chapel Trust, has now plunged from 36 to 25. I still like Kotara, though, because that Freeport LNG export facility will eventually come back online, although it may not be till the end of the year. And many more of these terminals are being built. The uh, one worry I have is that natural gas is having a second leg down in this country. Uh, which caused the whole group to get hammered once again. That said, I think Kotara's incredible bargain at these prices. It's given up almost its entire gain since Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, one thing certain, the pipeline stocks are making a real comeback because there's a major pipeline shortage. I think Kinder Morgan and Energy Transfer Partners are the best, although the latter is run in a very profligate fashion. Finally, 
I like the oil service place. There are only two you need to consider, Halliburton and Schlumberger. Halliburton's more geared to the U.S., and while some of its big independents like Pioneer and Diamondback aren't drilling as much as they did, Exxon and Occidental sure are. As for Schlumberger, it's going to have a heck of a year, as every OPEC country wants to get more oil into the market. Both should do exceptionally well, given that they've literally just crashed like so many other parts of the market. I, it, it's frankly unbelievable to me how much these went down just in the last, say, uh, 10 days. Uh, even though their earnings and their outlook should be superb. The declines are breathtaking, though. But so are their advances, which is why I expect to happen next. The bottom line, if you don't have any oil and gas exposure, today's meltdown is giving you a very good chance to buy some, do some buying. I think you should have at least 4% of your portfolio in energy, which is it's weighting the S&P 500. By buying a major oil company, I suggested Chevron, and I'm looking at Exxon, or the high yielders like Pioneer and Devon, or the oil service titans, or even Refiner but only if you're willing to accept the political risk. Let's go to Miles in Louisiana. Miles. Hey, Jim. Just want to thank you for the guidance and reassurance you provide us through the Investing Club. Um, you thank you, man. It's been IP- a tough first half. I mean, we're, we're a stock investment club, but I'm so glad you said that. Thank you so much. We had a good day today. What's up? Yes, sir. Uh, you had profiled High Peak Energy back in April. Just wanted to get your updated thoughts on that stock, given the pullback in oil recently. Thanks. I think High Peak is terrific. I think it turned out to be the cheapest stock in the group. Uh, there is nothing not to like about High Peak. Energy, High Peak and I think that uh, this is an opportunity. By the way, we did this uh, a company that also did LNG uh, uh, shipping the other day, uh, which I'm looking at a lot of the LNG shipping companies. I think that those are in very good shape. Let's go to Sandra in Colorado. Sandra. Hi. Great to talk to you, Jim. Thanks so much. Antero Resources. Um, I purchased a sizable share of Antero at $2 and added more through $12 in early 21. Antero has lost about 40% from their $48 high at the beginning of June, sitting today at $29. Should I take my gain off the table and sell some or all? No, I, I look, term? I think Antero is just a great long-term hold, okay? Now, I totally understand it is up a huge amount, and if you want to take some off the table, that's fine, but I don't know when you, how you know whether to be a buy it back, uh, whether you can trade it that successfully. I think it's just a great company. I saw a recommendation today. Accelerate was the company I was thinking about. So I do like oil, but I accept it to be choppy. Antero is a great company. I can't tell you that. Look, there's no harm in taking a profit, but what a good company that is. I want to thank that first gentleman from Louisiana, Miles. Thank you so much for saying good things about the club. Big meeting, uh, club meeting next Monday. It's been very difficult to run the club, but we're doing our best. If you don't own any oil and gas, now is the time to do some buying. I suggest having at least 4% of your portfolio in energy, and you're getting a literal crash in the stocks right now. Much more man money ahead. Now that we've covered the down the S&P, it's time to dissect the top five and bottom five performers for the NASDAQ 100 in the first half of 2022. Then crypto is another corner of the market that struggled in the first half of the year. So is there hope for a rebound? I'm going to give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the lighting round. So stay with Kramer. While we're going over the first half, let's talk about the best and worst performers in the NASDAQ 100. That is the epicenter of the bear market. Tech stocks were horrendous in the first half, and weirdly, it's the best performers of this index that tell the story more than the worst ones, because they demonstrate just how little there was to like. No apples, no Googles, no semis, no softwares or services, just default names that shows you that techs become absolutely hated. Maybe so hated that I think we could see a serious bounce, as I said at the top of the show, a micron-like bounce. 
witnessed some of the best performers of the day. They were Alphabet and Meta, even as almost all the analyst commentary was negative today. Like Micron, that made a ton of sense much higher. But down here, not so much. And if you write off a metaverse or you write off a Google, remember, you're writing off the best managements in the industry. The biggest winner for, for, for the first half is a great example of a non-tech triumph, and that's Vertex Pharma. Now, I've always liked Vertex ever since it came up with its life-changing cocktail for cystic fibrosis. This is a horrendous disease, and Vertex is really the only company that has made any progress in fighting this thing. They've got some other drugs in the pipeline, but nothing that promising. However, the cystic fibrosis drug managed almost $1.8 billion in sales in the first quarter alone, helping to drive a 22% increase in revenues for the period. What's crazy is that those numbers were a disappointment. Vertex only really rallied hard because AbbVie, which was sampling a possibly competitive drug, failed to show efficacy. In other words, it's not that Vertex won. It's that their chief rival lost. Without something better from its pipeline, though, I don't see the stock making the top 10 in the second half. The second best performer, Activision Blizzard, is a special situation because this video game company is being bought by Microsoft, assuming the FTC let it happen. The arbitrageurs seem very unsure about this deal. There's a wide spread between where the stock's trading and where it would go if the deal actually happens. I'm not an arbitrage guy, but I will say that the Biden antitrust regime may very well try to squash this deal because it will arguably produce too much concentration in video game publishing, make it harder for people who want to do games not to pit Microsoft against Activision Blizzard. And the, the Justice Department cares about that. I think the risk of work for Activision is terrible, given how poorly the rest of the group's been acting. It's a COVID stock. These video game stocks really just peaked and have never come back since COVID was solved. Well, it, let's say COVID got better. Of course, if you look at the antitrust precedents, it would be nuts for the regulators to block the deal. I say that the wrong framework, as we saw from the Supreme Court last week, nobody cares about precedent. Biden's antitrust regulators want to break with precedent. They think we've been too lax about corporate consolidation. I agree with them. Even if Microsoft is allowed to buy Activision Blizzard, I think it's not worth the risk. By the way, if any of you think that JetBlue will be allowed to buy Spirit Airlines, you're fooling yourself, if not drooling on yourself. I'm begging you to do some homework. Hey, you know what? Just read some of the speeches from Jonathan Cannon. He's the assistant attorney general for antitrust. And you will know that it's very, very slim read to think that deal's going to go through. The third best performer is one I really like. It's T-Mobile. It's an odd one. I think it ranks up there because ATT is hobbled, while Verizon has dropped back, maybe even in quality. This is a great example of what I talked about before. T-Mobile's a very good story, but does it really deserve to be the third best stock in the NASDAQ 100? Only because everything else is so bad. I do predict another good quarter from these guys. They are very consistent. Number four, we recommend a Constellation Energy because it's all about nuclear power which is the only same way to aggressively move away from fossil fuels. I said there's an ocean of money going toward anything that looks like a nuke play, and that's exactly what happened. But can it keep winning? Unfortunately, I have no hope whatsoever that this country is going to go for new nuclear power plants, uh, even small form factors, because Chernobyl and Fukushima demonstrated how easy it is for a meltdown to turn into a runaway radiation nightmare. Nobody wants to live next to a nuclear power plant, and I don't blame them, although I used to live near one, and it was fine. Right? I mean, presumably. Meanwhile, the purveyors of nuclear power can't estimate the cost of production, but they can't shut down the darn things. That's the problem. That's why if you want a nuke play, you go with the older plants that have been grandfathered in. That's Constellation Energy. Number five, strange, CGEN, uh, has to do with the firing of now former CEO Clay Siegel uh, for domestic violence allegations. Once that happened, Wall Street started speculating that Merck would make a bid for this biotech. Phenomenal anti-cancer franchise. Merck has a stake in it. For once, I'm willing to say, have at it. 
I like the franchise, and Merck needs CGen no matter the cost. I think that of these, it could be real. On an earnings basis, I'm fine with this one, okay? This is too dicey for me. All right, now, the, the thing of all these winners have in common is they are boring as all get out. Now, how about the NASDAQ 100's biggest losers? The fifth oct is a bit of a surprise because while the cybersecurity outfit suffered from a hack, we know it didn't seem to affect their ability to win new business. Octa's still going for that game set match, though, when it comes to sales. Uh, so it paid the price in two ways, multiple, multiple compression and bad press. The company's not profitable. It's going for broke. So I simply can't recommend the stock here under the bear market rules that we established, especially when you can buy Palo Alto or CrowdStrike ahead. I think that those are much better. OK, fourth is DocuSign is one of those companies that thrived at the height of the pandemic because their software lets you sign contracts over the Web. But now it's hit a wall as the world's going back to normal. While the former CEO, Dan Springer, did a great job. That was then. This is now. At its current $13 billion valuation, you might think DocuSign's a buy. Stock still sells at 38 times earnings, though. Uh, and it's why you have to ask, shouldn't you sell it into the strength here that we're getting? Because maybe it should sell for 20 times earnings, especially after it missed earnings expectations. Why hasn't anyone acquired this company? Maybe because it just isn't all that special? Did have that nice bounce back. I'm still surprised. At, at, I don't know whether it's worth $8 billion or $40 billion. That's the difficult part of a DocuSign. Third is PayPal. Oh, boy. This company is doing fabulously before COVID. Then it did even better. But now the whole fintech space has gone out of style. and It's absolutely loathed. Stock seems overvalued regardless of where it's trading because its earnings are not going to be equal to the PE. In other words, it's, it's going to not be able to make enough money to make you feel it's cheap, okay? Uh, some are baffled by this valuation, but I think the key metric here is margins, which will be shredded by everyone, including Apple. Meaning, as far as PayPal's fallen, it, it could bounce here and then go lower, unless someone comes along with a takeover bid, and I don't think the government will let that consolidation occur. Given what I just said about the current antitrust backdrop, I think you're taking your life in your hands if you're trying to bet on potential takeover for PayPal. Let it rally and scale out. Second worst, really, really curious, is Align. Yeah, Align Technology, maker of Invisalign braces, just pure and simple missed the numbers. It simply didn't sell as many of its products as we expected. When you miss and your stock sells at 35 times earnings, it may not stop at 25 times earnings where it is now, even if your CEO bought $2 million worth of stock in the open market. Surprisingly, there's no new competition on the horizon, though. And China, where the shortfall occurred, may be one off. I like Align down here. I think you can make a slow and steady comeback. I think it's very interesting. Finally, there's the mangy dog that is Netflix. Do you know this stock now sells at just 17 times earnings? Before you say that, that's incredible. There are many growth stories like Alphabet or Meta that sell for even, no, for much less than that and are very attractive. Why do you do with something like this that used to be very well, uh, do very well, but it's now doing a heck of a lot worse? I think you say Netflix over-earned during COVID, and now it must prove that there's still growth, something they definitely haven't done yet. That's why I think it's so much easier just to go buy Disney which, unlike Netflix, has some lucrative theme parks that are packed all over the world to go with its streaming service and a fantastic library. The bottom line, when it comes to tech, Fang went into a portfolio manager-induced coma in the first half, and Netflix was the first to be put under. What else is there to say except that if any stock has fallen hard enough, like Micron, then there's certainly hope for resuscitation, uh, even of some of the Fangers. Although there's been so many name changes, we have to come up with something real quickly for those that are no longer comatose. Like, like, like. The rest, eh. Man, money's back here for the break. 
coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Keep that down. The lightning round is over. Let's start with Jeff in Washington. Jeff. Jim, I need your wisdom and knowledge to understand this new merger of Whiting and Oasis Petroleum into CHRD, C-H-R-D. This kind of happened under the radar screen, and I think that we ought to just have them on because I think it seems very interesting. But, of course, everybody hates oil so much, we got to do more work. But I I like the idea in principle. Got to see if they're going to make as much money as I think. Let's go to Bobby in California. Bobby. Boy, uh, Jimbo, Bobby from Morgan Hill, California. I want to know about Cloudflare. I want to... All right, this stock has fallen enough. I mean, I don't like stocks that aren't ma- I don't like companies that aren't making money, but I think Matthew Prince should come on the show because they were doing so well. Maybe he's pivoting to trying to make money because I know that they can do it. Bob in Florida. Bob. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you, Bob? Good, thank you. This call concerns MP Materials, the rare earth company. Yeah. I, look, I, there is a – we need rare earth for EV. This has been a, a company that stock has just come down way, way too much. It has been a good stock to buy in the 20s, and it's almost there. May I suggest you do that? Jeff in Alabama. Jeff. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of I've course. got a faculty check I need. Uh, Dow Chemical. Okay, so the it's estimate for Dow, the estimates for Dow are probably too high. That said, it's at a 52-week low. It yields 5.5%. It's run by Jim Fitterling. I think you buy it in the 40s. This stock is down so much that I find it very compelling. How about Devin in Florida? Devin. Hey, booyah, Jim. How booyah. are you? What's going on? Hey, my question is, which, uh, why is Citigroup lagging other financials? And specifically, because why it's under it consent degree problem. Show? It has a series of problems involved with, that management is trying to check the boxes off. May I suggest you buy Morgan Stanley, which does not have these regulatory problems. We bought some today for the Travel Trust. But remember, this group is right now awful and hated because there's not enough activity. There's not enough IPOs. But that's why I like Morgan Stanley, because it's consistent. Let's go to Chris in Rhode Island. Chris. Uh, hey, Jim, big fan. I'd like to ask Thank you about you. Warner Bros. Discovery. Is it a buy? Is it a hold? Look, if Warner Bros. Thought? Discovery at 14 is a buy, then you should just take every penny and buy Disney, which is the stock that we own from our Chapel Trust. They got a theme park. They have a balance sheet that's improving. I don't like the Warner Brothers Discovery balance sheet, although I think that they do talk a good game. Let's go to Robert in Tennessee. Robert. Jim. Robert. Calling about SoFi, man. I don't, look, so I have no look. I have, what I've been saying about SoFi is I do not understand it. It's at five bucks. That makes no sense to me. It's a better bank than people think. But that said, I have no catalyst to recommend the stock. Let's go to William in Missouri, please. William. Hey, Jimmy. Booyah, booyah, booyah. Booyah to um, you. Yeah, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller, but a big fan. And um, the stock I've got for you, down 20% year-to-date, 5% yield, about one-time earnings, long-term contracts. It's, it's in the shipping industry. Danio's DAC. Okay, those stocks always look like that before they roll over. And that is the problem. 
I can't recommend the stock precisely because that's what I've seen in shipping stocks all my life. This is when they were over. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. And the whole trajectory of crypto in the first half seems like a big joke when the players who got in late, although a lot of fun for those who got in early and took profits. At the crypto top, we had all sorts of coins like Litecoin, Cardano, Solana, Polkadot, Dogecoin, and 19,000 others that never really caught on besides Bitcoin and Ethereum. The painful punchline of the joke, if you bought any of these on borrowed money thinking you could get 10, 20, or even 30% of your crypto just by having it in an account because, hey, it, it, it all it does ever go up, you've been obliterated. Now, the golden crypto goose is being slaughtered, and those terrific rates tended to be illusory, as the so-called bank you had it in may have frozen your account and stopped all trading. I can make a lot of comparisons to the year 2000, when the dot-com bomb wiped out billions of dollars of similarly captivated investors. Many of them got in right at the end, thanks to those dot-com ads at the Super Bowl. Sure enough, we had the same thing happen this year, when four different crypto outfits ran Super Bowl ads, encouraging you to be bold and brave and make the easy money like everyone else was doing. These ads particularly appealed to younger people, many of whom put money in their major crypto bank, uh, brokers like Coinbase, Robinhood. But a lot of them put their money in obscure firms that offered these incredibly high interest rates. That's how the value of all cryptocurrencies got up to nearly $3 trillion at its peak before crashing down to less than $1 trillion here. And frankly, I don't know if that fork can hold, although there is too much at stake for the crypto winners to let this thing fall below this level. In just June alone, Bitcoin, which is the best of the best, the gold standard, if I can still use that term, lost more than 40% of its value. Many of the coins disappeared. Dogecoin, which traded 70 cents when its champion, Elon Musk, went on Saturday Night Live, that was a little more than a year ago, now trades at less than 7 cents. But at least it trades. It seems like every day some crypto alpha goes uh, under or ceases to trade its own uh, made-up currencies. This time it's Vault, V-A-U-L-D, not Vault, which had more than $600 million in cryptocurrencies. They're talking to a potential acquirer. Maybe that will allow clients to get their money out. Maybe it won't. And that's why 20000 is so important. The crypto forces need to create stability at any, any effort and cost. Full disclosure, I've been a big believer in Bitcoin a couple of years ago, although I could never make up my mind about whether it was a legitimate storeholder value or just a hot speculative asset. But when it went up too much, I rang the register and used my profits to put a down payment on a farm in Pennsylvania. Why not? I like hard assets. I did disclose that repeatedly on air, too. I also disclosed that I owned a substantial chunk of Ethereum left over from when I bid on a non-fungible token at an auction conducted by Time Magazine. They said you had to bid in Ethereum, so I took the dollars, made it, put it in Ethereum, and then proceeded to bid up to $100,000 worth to get the NFT for the Legendary's God Dead cover from April 8, 1966. At that price, I had to clear it with my wife, Lisa, who promptly asked me what I got for owning the NFT. I said virtually nothing, and she said I was out of my mind. Fortunately, somebody else outbid me. But I kept that money in Ethereum in part because I forgot about it and ended up catching a triple. That's when I took off almost everything because I felt like I was really pressing my luck. I kept some back, but freaked out when the crypto exchanges started falling apart, and I couldn't transfer my Ethereum to J.P. Morgan, my banker, because they wouldn't take it. I got out of what might be considered the nick of time. To me, the crash in crypto has more to do with the crash in the crypto exchanges than it did in the actual cryptocurrencies. Losing money because you bought something and it went down is one thing, but losing money because you can't take money out of your account? Nothing's worse financially. Makes you know how many people felt during the bank, how they felt right before the FDIC. Look, crypto is no laughing matter. 
It just wiped out $2 trillion in wealth, something that really hurts a lot of people, especially if you put your money in around those t- at the time of those big Super Bowl ads. The losses have, la- have likely wiped out a whole generation of investors, just like the dot-com collapse in 2000. I wish I could be more constructive about the remaining trillion. The people who got rich off of crypto are making a serious and strong stand at 20000 for Bitcoin. That, I am afraid, will suck people in, creating still one more exit opportunity for those who got it much lower. As it sure looks like that it turns out that's exactly how the game is played. I like to say that there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 